American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. So what caused this massive economic collapse? Well, there are a lot of theories, and to a large extent, it's, it's important to get the theory right, because if we understand the causes, then perhaps we will have some clues as to what kind of policies to adopt to bring an economy back to recovery. So some of the causes which have been suggested are as follows. Certainly, there's been a great deal of criticism of uh, overspeculation, particularly in the stock markets. And there's no doubt that many people were overleveraged and that what was actually happening was a real bubble in stock prices that was bound to burst, whether explosively or slowly was, of course, the question. Another factor that people have suggested uh, is that, in fact, wages were not keeping up with corporate profits. Wages were not keeping up with corporate profits, and what this meant was that actual purchasing power in the economy was not rising fast enough to meet uh, the overall growth of the economy and to continue the overall growth of the economy. And again, the statistics show that this may also have been true. Other people have criticized the reliance on the gold standard as the international method of currency exchange, and others have pointed to many of the mistakes that were quite clearly made by banks, both in the United States and elsewhere, which led to massive financial instability. But of course, this is perhaps the biggest financial and more broadly economic crash in the history of the U.S. economy, and in fact, in the history of the worldwide industrialized economy. So it's quite possible that many of these causes were happening at the same time. And what we see is a perfect storm, a perfect storm of economic calamity. Now, none of that quite resolves the question of what policy to follow. And unfortunately, the policies that the U.S. government in particular followed in the wake of the crash seem to have done absolutely nothing to rectify the situation, at least for the first few years. Now, the president... Uh, who's in office in 1929, is the recently elected Herbert Hoover. And it seems on the surface that Hoover should have been the man for the occasion. After all, he is the engineer who was sent to Europe to mastermind the U.S. efforts to help war-torn Europe recover from the devastation of World War I. And in 1927, he was sent by the federal government to help devastated Mississippi and Louisiana recover from the massive Mississippi River flood of that year. So he should have been the person to manage the situation. But in fact, he adopts a series of policies from others that turn out to not only fail, but to actually make the situation worse. Congress, for instance, passes the Smoot-Hawley Tariff, which uh, in order to uh, raise revenues, revenues having crashed along with the uh, economic uh, deflation, in order to raise revenues, increases the tariff on imported goods dramatically. And this is uh, met with a response uh, on the part of other countries by a raising of their own tariff barriers, barriers. And that, in turn, devastates international trade, cutting off markets for U.S. products, and providing simply more impetus for companies to put American workers uh, out of a job. More broadly, I think we could argue that Hoover adopts the philosophy of his Treasury Secretary, Andrew Mellon. Andrew Mellon argues that what should be done in a crisis is liquidate, liquidate everything, liquidate stocks, bonds, banks, everything. 
And by this he means offer no support for prices, offer no support for those who are devastated uh, by uh, being put out of work, do nothing, and eventually the economy will recover on its own. Anything else, adopting, if, if you will, Henry Ford's philosophy, anything else is simply going to make the situation work or, or worse. Well, by 1932, many Americans think Andrew Mellon and Herbert Hoover have been proved wrong. The economy continues to sink even further. Unemployment is at a level never before seen, 25%, 30%, maybe even higher. Local banks are closing all around the country, and every week the situation seems to be getting worse. Hoover is up for re-election against the charismatic New York governor, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And Roosevelt wins a runaway victory, which isn't surprising uh, when the situation in the economy is that bad. But what is surprising, Benjamin Roth writes in his diary uh, shortly after the victory, is the way in which everybody seems to have uh, placed their faith, placed their last bet on Roosevelt. They seem to be, as he put it, simply marking time until Roosevelt is inaugurated. They weren't sure what Roosevelt would do, and indeed, as we'll find out, Roosevelt himself wasn't sure what he would do. But they seem to believe uh, that he is their last possible hope. Now, all those people who are waiting to see what Roosevelt would do probably understand the situation they were in better than historians often do, looking back at that time. Many of them criticize Roosevelt. They suggest that since he, at the point uh, when he's getting ready to be inaugurated, still doesn't know exactly what he's going to do, they suggest that somehow uh, he was perhaps a fraud, um, perhaps not likely to be an effective leader, perhaps someone who would end up simply getting lucky. But all of those voters, all of those American citizens who waited to see what he was going to do, understood perhaps better than we do in retrospect the gravity of their situation, the way that their society seemed to be only weeks or days or even perhaps hours from social collapse or perhaps something even worse. And if they looked around the world, they could see that in fact that seemed to be happening and other industrialized nations, other nations that were also devastated by what was now four years of total economic depression. They could look at the terrifying things that seemed to be going on, in particular in places like Italy and Germany, where Mussolini was using uh, economic instability to, to tighten his hold on Italian society, and Hitler was using economic instability to actually come to power and began to set the world uh, not just Europe, but the entire world on a course for the greatest and most devastating war in history. Now, American citizens didn't know that that was going to happen. Franklin Roosevelt didn't know that that was going to happen. But they understood, in a very visceral way, the stakes. And so their hope was desperate, because their situation, in many ways, was desperate indeed. Things could have gone differently. So we will spend the next few subsections looking at what Roosevelt did, what other Americans did, and how they steered not just the economy, uh, but the society and the politics of the United States in a different direction, a direction that helps to explain the very different outcome of the United States by the time we get to the end of World War II as compared to the outcome. For more information, go to edX.org and look for American Capitalism, A History with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist.
or go to facebook.com slash American Capitalism MOOC. This podcast has been brought to you by Cornell X from Cornell University. Thank you.